Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Today we're going to move into um, we're going to move into book five of of the Psalms. You'll remember that the book of Psalms is divided into a couple of introductory Psalms. Then there's five internal books in the Psalms, and then there's a conclusion of Psalms one forty six to one fifty. And this this week it falls uh, in book five. We took a, a Sunday one Psalm from each book. Psalm book five is one o seven to one forty five. And as I was perusing these psalms to, to figure out what to speak on, I found so many of them inspirational, and it was actually kind of hard to, to choose. Uh, we've heard of many of these psalms, at least partially. Psalm 119 falls in book five, and Psalm 119 is a very familiar psalm. It's the longest chapter in the book, in the Bible. It's the longest psalm. It's about the Word of God. It's a, it's a great psalm. I don't know, I guess somebody could preach it in one sitting. Psalm 127 falls in book five, and 127 has this line in it, which you'll be familiar with, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, right? That's Psalm 127, and that's a verse we love to hold on to. God, please build a house, because unless you do, we're just, we're spinning our wheels. But you may not know, but Psalm 127 also has this, and it's a great motivation, a great encouragement, a great challenge, a great blessing to you young couples. But here's what it says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, Let arrows in the hand of a warrior, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. You know, I I bought that. I bought that when I was a a, a young dad. And I, I really would just like to recommend God's word to all of you young couples. I mean, today children are like, it's sort of like, well, I'll get, my, I'll get my two and that's good if I want my two. I don't really want children because I really want the blessing of, of being childless. And listen, I realize even as I'm saying these words that some of you women and, and, and dads have, or husbands have had the hardship of not being able to have children. And I know the heartbreak that is. But, but to those of us who can have children, you know, believe what God says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? So how do we please God? By faith, right? What is faith? Faith is taking God at his word and believing him. And here's something he tells us. And again, I'm not trying to say that you should have as many children as you can have. I'm not saying that. But let me read it again, Psalm 127. This isn't even the psalm for today. Children are a heritage From the Lord, do you believe that? The fruit of the womb, a reward, do you believe that? Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. They're like, if you're a warrior, I'm telling you, you want to have arrows in your quiver. Going off to fight, you know, with one arrow in your quiver is not going to be very fun, right? You want a bunch of arrows. And and, and blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
Psalm 133 also falls in book five. Here's Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell, dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Now I'll be honest with you, I have absolutely, I don't really know what that means. I, I don't want you to pour, pour, pour oil on my head. I wouldn't find that an awesome thing running down on my clothes. I really wouldn't like that. But I do find awesome that first line. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I mean, it's just something awesome when, when we as the family of God are living together, united in Jesus, and just loving Jesus together and loving one another. I, I tell you what, the church family, our church family included, but I mean the church, the greater big C church family of God, it's been under, a, our unity's been under assault. And it's hard when we're divided. Politics, viruses, medical responses to all that's happened to us, I mean, all of that has assaulted our unity for the last couple of years. And, you know, and, and, and how blessed it is when we dwell together in unity. Unity takes us fighting for it. It takes us being willing to lay down our, our preferences or our what we might think is right at times. I'm not talking about moral stuff here. I'm talking about what we might think is the best path. Sometimes we've got to lay it down and just... You know, fight for unity rather than for what we might necessarily think is best. So I just challenge us to unity. But when I, when I realized that book five included Psalm 139, that was the psalm that I just knew immediately when I realized it, that that was what I wanted to deal with. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139 if you haven't already, and I'm going to read it for us. A Psalm of David. Lord, I'm reading from the CSB. If you have an electronic Bible and you want to follow along, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Psalm of David, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this to be very, I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. 
you bloodthirsty men. Stay away from me. Who invoke you uh, deceitfully? Who invoke you, God, deceitfully? Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, I don't hate. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. In his closing verses, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139 is a very familiar, very well-known, very beloved psalm in the collection of psalms, and for good reason. This psalm speaks pervasively of God's presence in our lives and of God's intimate knowledge of us. And so my hope this morning, this is what I've been praying for. I I really, I tell you, I feel the weight of today. I I feel like God has given me a word and I, I pray and, and I ask you to choose to listen attentively this morning and to allow the Spirit of God to just, to, to just refresh our relationship with Him and energize our relationship with Him. This psalm addresses God as Yahweh. That's the name that God gave us for himself. Now, I'm not talking about the, the gods that God created, the, the, the lesser spiritual beings that he gave some rulership over. Uh, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the one uncreated eternal God. His name is Yahweh. And if you don't remember what that means in our language, it means I am or the ever-present one. That's the name God gave us for himself. He said, I, my name is the ever-present one, the, the I am. And in this psalm, a psalm written by David, he addresses Yahweh by name. And then he uses the second person pronouns, you. So all throughout this psalm, David is talking about Yahweh. He's not talking about someone else mediating for Yahweh. He's not talking about a lesser being who's maybe in charge of us or is supposed to watch over us. Or, no, this, this is Yahweh. David's talking about Yahweh. When he wrote this song, he wrote it with four stanzas. There were six verses in each stanza. I'm not going to break down David's song like that. I'm instead going to break down David's psalm And I'm going to give you what I believe are six realities about our relationship with God. And and, and like I said, I'm just so hopeful that the Spirit of God is going to work in our hearts this morning. But I have six realities about the relationship, our relationship with God, His relationship with us. Let's dive in. Here's the first one. God is interested in us. God is interested in you, George. God is interested in me. The deist is someone who says there is a God. He's a creator God. He's the creator of all things, but he doesn't care about us. He's not at all interested in us. He's not interested in our lives. He's not interested in our dreams, our thoughts, our going-ons. But David starts this psalm and he says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. Now, the Hebrew word there examined in, in the uh, CSB or maybe searched in, in another translation literally means to dig. It's like digging a hole, right? And, and that word came, when, when, when spoken of in a relationship, it came to mean 
intimately getting to know someone, like you're digging for jewels in a buried, buried in a field, like you're digging for those jewels to find them, the, the, the term came to mean like digging in our lives to get to know us. Here's what David is saying. God doesn't just know you superficially. God has dug into you. He's looking at you. He's interested in you personally. Verses 17 and 18, if you drop down, David speaks to the same same truth. He says, God, how precious are your thoughts. Your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. David says, God, your thoughts for me, they're precious. God, you value me. He says, if I was to count the thoughts that you have towards me, they'd outnumber the grains of sand on the, on the earth. That's hyperbole, folks. I don't think that's true because there's so many grains of sand. I don't know that God can have that many thoughts for us in our limited time. But, but David is basically saying, God is thinking about us continually. He knows you. He knows you. He, he knows you so, so well. As I mentioned, as I mentioned here, it's Yahweh David's talking about. It's it's the Creator God. He knows about you. Not some lesser God or some lesser created spiritual being. No, this is the uncreated God. He is interested in my life. He knows about me. Maybe you think, why are you making such a big point about that? I'm making a big point about that because I want you to recognize that the one who is over everything. And he, he cares about Jimmy. When I was in college, I've told you this story before, but I got a letter from a pastor. I'd never met the man. His name was Sam Tatum. Pastored over Newport News. He's gone now. But Sam took an interest in me. He thought about me. And he would write me letters. I was an MK. I was a missionary kid. That's why he did it. I doubt I would have showed up on his radar screen apart from that. But because of being a missionary kid and being in Virginia and Sam, I guess that's why he took an interest in me. But you know, he wrote me hand, he wrote me hand letters quite often. And you know what? I felt loved by Sam because he was interested in me. I really, I didn't even know that. I met him years later and he became my friend. But during that time, I'm telling you, I don't even know the man. I'm getting these letters from him, and they're not a form letter. They're a letter from a man who's interested in me, and it means the world to me. I want to ask you just a rhetorical question. Do you live consciously this morning with this truth, that God is actually interested in you, that he actually knows you by name? I actually cares about you, that he thinks about you. He thinks about you so often. David said it's like all the grain, it's more than all the grains and, uh, of sand in the world. Are you conscious of that, that, that the creator God thinks of you? Number, number two, God knows us. Doesn't just, he doesn't have an interest in me. He doesn't just have an interest in me. He actually knows me. David continues, oh Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and I stand up. You know my thoughts even from when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. David tells us that when I'm sitting, like you guys are doing right now, God knows all about you right now when you're sitting. He knows all about, I'm standing. He knows all about me when I'm standing. When I'm sitting, when I'm standing, 
when I'm lying down, when I'm traveling. I was traveling the last couple of weeks a little bit. He knew about my travel. But this week I've been home, and he knows about me when I'm home. He knows everything about me. Reminds me about what Jesus told us about Yahweh. Remember what Jesus told us about Yahweh? He said, Yahweh knows even the numbers of hair on your head. I mean, that's how thorough God's knowledge is of us. We, we often hide our sin from each other, but there is no hiding anything from God because he knows us so completely. So he knows when I fail and he knows when I succeed. He knows when I'm drawn into sin and, and I give in to my desires that are sinful. But he also knows when I pull up and pull away and don't give in. He knows all of that. David continues, verse 4, You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. God doesn't just know where you are and what you're doing. God knows what you're thinking. He knows your thoughts. He knows your mind. He knows your bad thoughts. He knows your lustful thoughts, your greedy thoughts. You're angry and hateful thoughts. He knows all of those. But he also knows when you take captive your thoughts that are wrong and you arrest them and you cast them out. He sees the good and the bad in your mind. David considers it wonderful that God knows everything about him like that. He says, too hard for me to understand. It's so wonderful. This morning morning in our prayer time at 8 o'clock, we read this and this was Dickie's prayer. God, it's so wonderful that you know me. Sometimes I wonder, is it really wonderful that you know my thoughts? You know everything about me. You know what I'm doing. You know what I'm thinking. In verse 15 and 16, drop down a little bit. Same thought. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, he's talking, that's a, that is a, a, a metaphor for being formed in your mother's womb. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me. When I was formless, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Not only does God know what we do and what we think, but here David says that when we're being formed in our mother's womb, when we're formless in our mother's womb, God knows about us. God knows when I'm a zygote. I don't know if it's zygote or zygote, one of you science people. Which is it? It's what? Zygote. Okay, the science teacher says zygote. I'm going with her. So when we were a zygote, just a few cells, right? Just a few cells. Formless. God knows us then. When we're a blastosis, that's a few more cells. It's a certain number, I don't remember. But you're a blastosis, and then you're an embryo, and then you're a fetus. And in all of those times, you're formless until maybe towards the end of your time in your mother's womb, the fetus has the form that we recognize because it's about to, it's about to be born. But when you're just a fertilized egg in your mother's fallopian tube, God saw you and knew your existence. And what's more in this text, David says, God, you knew how many days I would live even before I had lived any of them. So if you are a blastosis or an, an, an embryo in your mother's womb and you're killed by uh, an abortifacient, you're killed by a, an abortion pill of some sort that 
that disconnects you from your mom's uterus and, and you're washed out and you die. God knows you only live 24 years, uh, 24 hours. God knows how long you live. You know, some Christians believe that God knows how many days we're going to live because God is the direct cause of how many days we're going to live. And I've said this before, but the mystery is then posited. How can God know how many days I'm going to live and be the direct cause of them and not be the cause of evil? Well, that's a mystery. I don't know how that is. Others say, no, God can never cause evil, but if he knows everything, he's got to be the direct cause of it. So therefore, you know, um, God doesn't know everything. The problem with that is the Bible's really, really, really clear, guys. God knows everything in the future is yet to be. That's what David says. You know how many days I have before I'm even born. You know how many days I have. So other believers say God does know the future, but he's not the direct cause of all things. That God has set up natural law that, that works a certain way. And that God has given us a degree of distinct autonomy from his own. In other words, I can make decisions apart from his decisions, right? God knows all that, and he knows how all of that's going to work together, and he knows the future, but he is not the direct cause of that future. He knows how it's going to be. That's the mystery to me is how can God know everything that's going to be and yet not be the cause of it? Uh, that's a mystery. I, I, I posit the mystery there, not, not the other place, right? But here's, here's the thing I want you to see. Uh, God, God knows the future, but he's not the cause of the future, in my opinion. And here, But here David says, God, you know the days that are appointed for me. You know how many days I'm going to live. Now here's the point I'm trying to make. Trust me, you affect the days, you can affect the days you're going to live. I'm telling you folks, listen, if you damage your body, you damage your life by overeating, by drug abuse, by dangerous activity, chances are you are going to live less days than you would have lived had you not done those things. You follow me? But God knows all that. When parents kill their children through abortion, that, that person's days are much, that little child's days are much less than they would have been had they been allowed, uh, had they been allowed. So I could go on, but here's my point. I'm thinking out loud. Do you think it's wonderful that God knows everything about you to that extent? That he knows your actions, your thoughts, and he knows your days in the womb. He knows you in the womb before when you're formless. And he knows how many days you have. Does that you find that comforting, wonderful? David does. I hope you do too. Number three, God is always with us. I guess it's only reasonable that if God knows all we do in part, it must be that he always is present with us. Again, here's what David says. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. The darkness and light are alike to you. In a Christian school cafeteria, as the kids walked down this table, there was a pile of apples on the end. 
And there was a sign there that said, take only one, God is watching. At the other end of the table, there was a pile of cookies and there was a sign put there by a child that said, take all you want, God's watching the apples. (laughs) I hate to disappoint those kids and all of us, but God is always watching the apples and he's always watching the cookies. The theological term for that is omnipresent. God is personally everywhere present in his creation. And again, that's a mystery. I don't understand it. You? How can God be absolutely present everywhere at every moment in time? How can that be? It's a mystery. I don't understand it. But that's what God reveals about himself, that his presence is always with us. Scottish theologian John Bailey taught at Edinburgh University, and he would start his class with these words every time, and I quote, We must remember in discussing God that we cannot talk about him without his hearing every word we say. We may be able to talk about others behind their back, but God is everywhere, yes, even in this classroom. Therefore, in all our discussions, we must be aware of his infinite presence and talk about him as it were before his face. God is here with us this morning. He's here Yahweh is here with us present today. We're never apart from his presence. David said, I could dig the deepest grave. I could fly to the furthest horizon, but I cannot get away from the presence of God. If I think the darkness hides me, I'm fooling myself because there is no darkness with God. Darkness and light, they're one and the same. I cannot get away from him. And as I was working on this this week, the, you know what came to mind? What came to mind were some of Jesus' last words to us. Remember what they were? And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. You can't escape me. I'm there, when, when I'm there always in what you do and what you think. I'm with you. Number four, God created us. Verse 13, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. Now here David says that Yahweh, God, is our creator. And here's that issue, again, that I just touched on a minute ago, and I don't feel like I did a very good job of it, but let me point it out here again in this passage. What does David mean by this? Does David mean that God is... God is creating us uh, with, with a micromanagement that he is bringing about everything that happens. Let me give you a little biology here. When a couple comes together, there are about 14, 40 million to 1.2 billion, did you hear that? 40 million to 1.2 billion sperm cells that are released. Of that number, only about 2 million of them swim and make it to the cervix. For the 2 million that make it to the cervix, around 1 million actually make it into the uterus. Of the 1 million sperm that make it into the uterus, only 10,000 of them make it to the the top of the uterus. Of the 10,000 that make it to the top, only half of them go in the right direction. (laughs) I think about those 5,000 that went the wrong way, right? But 5,000 of it make it into the uterotubal junction, and around 1,000 of those make it into the fallopian tube. Now, we started with 40, billion, 40 million to 1.2 billion. Now we're down to 1,000 make it into the fallopian tube. 
Of the thousand that make it into the fallopian tube, only 200 reach the egg. And of the 200 that reach the egg, only one of them, normally speaking, actually pierces and fertilizes the egg. So here's the question. Is God directly causing that one particular sperm to make it to that one particular egg? Or is, uh, is there a process? Some would say, yes, I heard it out there just a minute ago. Some said, yes. And if you say, yes, you are not categorically uh, wrong. I would say you may even be right. If God exists, who can create everything, including all sperm cells and egg cells, if this God exists, who can create all of this by his own design and by his spoken word? And by the way, this God does exist. His name is Yahweh. This God can, can easily micromanage and direct everything that happens so that everything that has happened is, is being directed by, by his by his purposes. That being said, I want you to know I don't believe that is the case personally. Doesn't make me wrong, doesn't make me right, but I don't believe he is. I believe God is our creator. And, uh, and you exist, I believe, because God created a creative process by which he designed the reproduction of life and the implementation of life. That's what I believe. And so when David says, it was you who created uh, my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Again, the, the answer could be the process of creation could be by direct creation. He is guiding every one of those individual guys to make it to the place that he wants to be. Or it could be that he has created a process by, by which we are wondrously, uh, wondrously made. But remember, we're not talking about what God could do. We're talking about what God did do. What did God do? And, and if you believe that God directed the, the, the process to that micromanagement, like I said, you're not proven wrong by God's abilities. He's more than able to do that. But before I move away from this, let me just make David's central point. Whichever you believe about that, that God is the direct cause of all that happens, or if you believe that God has set up processes that work and he works through those. Here's the point that David wants you to get. God creates us. God makes us. God, it is God who creates us in the womb. And, and, here's, and here's a sub point that we've already made. God knows you in the womb. God knows you in the womb. Let me chase this. Let me trace, chase this thread just a moment. In the abort debate, in the abortion debate that's raging in our Western world, the question of the fetus in the womb is not a question of the humanity of that unborn group of cells at the beginning that we call you know, embryo and zygote. The question is never whether that is a human being. Everybody, listen, on both sides of the abortion debate, everybody agrees it's a human being. The question is, when does that human being become a person with dignity and, and worthy of life? That's the question. That's the question that everybody's debating. And, and so, so many people would say that the personhood of that person, the person of that in the womb at that point, whatever point of development, maybe personhood begins with brainwaves. And so there's a lot of laws being you know, instituted in states that as soon as they find brain waves, then that child in the womb has personhood and should be given the right to live. 
Others say it's not brain waves, it's, it's heart function. So we have, a, in fact, I think that was what brought about the Dobbs decision, right, was the heart, heartbeat issue, right? When, when, a, when a fetus begins to have a heartbeat, then it should have personhood, and so then it should have the right uh, to be protected and to have life. Others would say that, in fact, many in our country would say that personhood begins with birth, that until the child is born, until the child comes out of its mother and is in the womb alive, then that's when it has personhood. Actually, what I really think our culture says is that personhood begins when mom and dad decide that it has personhood, right? That's what I really think most people would, most people would say, I think personhood begins when mom and dad bestow personhood on that child, or maybe mother in particular, right? If mother doesn't bestow personhood on that child, it's not a person. If, if mom does, it is, even if it's a, a zygote or an embryo, it has personhood if mom decides it. Now here, here's something, I, I, listen, you cannot read Psalm 139 without recognizing that God attributes personhood to even our unformed substance. That God, God makes personhood, you know, it, it, it starts when we, when we begin, from the very beginning, that's where personhood starts. And so, you know, now that Roe v. Wade has been, Roe's been overturned, I would, I would really like to ask us, if, if you come away from Psalm 139, seeing what I see, that personhood begin. God says, I knew you, I knew you when you were an unformed thing in your mother's womb. When, when God says, I knew you then, then if you, would, if you walk away from Psalm 139 saying personhood begins with conception, then I would like to urge you to do a couple things. The, the decision now moves to the states, and so I would encourage you to vote in agreement with what God says about personhood and vote for people who would affirm the personhood the personhood of unborn children. And the, but the other thing, and maybe even more importantly than voting, in fact, much more important than voting, and that is that you would speak up for the personhood of the unborn. I, I really want to urge you to do that. And listen, you, you can't just sit back and not prepare yourself for these discussions. You need to listen. You need to pre- how can you argue with someone who wants to tell you that it's not a person? And how would you argue for that? When someone says personhood, that, gl- that, that cells, when they're multiplying at the beginning, there's, there's, there's very, you know, they're in the first few weeks, there's no nervous system, there's no consciousness. That's not a person. How would you argue otherwise? And I really want to urge us, all of us, to study, to show yourself approved, not just in the handling of the word of God, but show yourself approved in how to argue for the things that God says are true and right. So speak up. I would say argue, prepare yourself. And listen, if you need help, ask me. I'll give you all kinds of material to help you develop your ability to carry on these conversations with people. I'm not talking about hateful conversations. I'm not talking about mean-spirited conversations. I'm talking about conversations where you argue civilly for the truth that God's put forth. Let me move on. Number five, God cares for others too. We come to that imprecatory part of the psalm. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who evoke 
invoke you, invoke you, I think that's God, invoke you, God, deceitfully. Your, your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with an extreme hate. I consider them my enemies. Well, this is an imprecatory part of this psalm. That means it's a curse. Imprecatory means curse. Some of the psalms have the psalmist cursing their enemies. And David is cursing ungodly people here and setting himself uh, up against them on God's behalf. But I want to tell you, as I read this in preparation, what struck me about these, this comment of David was in the very first line, God, if only you would kill the wicked. If only you would kill the wicked. And here's the point. Here's the point that David is alluding to. God doesn't uniformly or consistently kill the wicked. If only you would do it, God. If only you'd kill the wicked. The point is, God doesn't kill the wicked. And, and he's saying, I would kill them. I hate them. I hate them with a terrible hatred. If only you would kill them, God. But God doesn't kill them. And I think the reason why God doesn't kill David's or God's enemies and the enemies that David would say are his enemies is the same reason God didn't kill David when he killed Uriah and, and sinned with Bathsheba. You remember, he deserved to die for what he did, but God had mercy on him and forgave him. And the reason why God doesn't kill all the wicked people in the world is because the same compassion and kindness he had towards David is the way he feels about other wicked people too. You know, Jesus thought differently than David. Listen to our king. And this is Yahweh become one of us. You have heard that it was said, love your enemies and love your neighbor and hate your enemy like David just said. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, children of Yahweh in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do that. And if you only greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. David didn't understand that the care and forgiveness that God extended him was the same care and forgiveness that God wanted to extend to all of the wicked. He didn't understand that. And so he's like, God, if you would only kill the wicked, but God wouldn't kill the wicked. The religious people of Jesus' day, right, they, they thought these other people were more sinful than them. And Jesus said, a lot of those people are going to be in my kingdom before you guys because of your self-righteousness. So today I'd say to us, let's stop hating others. I'm not trying to say that we hate people, but... Let's stop hating others. Stop hating people to the left or to the right of us. Stop hating them and start praying for them. Have mercy on them, even as, even as God has had mercy on each of you. I couldn't help it, but as I was thinking about this, working through it, these verses came to mind. Here's Paul to Timothy. This is a good, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or here's Peter. When Peter says the judgment of God has been delayed, he said, God is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but all of you to come to repentance. You make fun of why he's delayed. Let me tell you why he's delayed. He's delayed because he wants you to be saved. How about the Old Testament in Ezekiel? Listen to the voice of God. But if the wicked person turns from all the sin he has committed, keeps all my statutes and, and does what is just and right, he will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. 
Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, I don't take pleasure. Uh, excuse me. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? So don't miss the point. The Bible is really clear. There is coming a day of judgment. There is coming a day when God will mete out his judgment on people and people will be lost and they will be destroyed. God's words, they will die the second death. They'll be cast into the lake of fire. But for now, but for now, God desires people to be saved. God desires people to come to repentance. God desires people. He he wants to have mercy on them because he wants them to turn to him. I'm finished with this. Number six, God is willing. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Now, David ends this psalm really like he began it, right? He began it, and yet it's different. It's similar, but it's different. Here's how he began. God, you have searched me. You have dug into my life. You have discovered me. You have been interested in me. You searched me. But here he changes, and he says, God, would you please search me? Would you please search me again? And he invites God to search him, to search his subconscious, and to say, test me. Show me where I need to change. Reveal my sin that I may be covering up. And then he says, and lead me, God, in the way that's everlasting. Lead me to the eternal life, in eternal life. Lead me into your forever kingdom. I call this last point, God is willing. If you want God to search you, he will search you. He will search you. He will test you. He will help you. He will tell you where you need to repent, where you need to listen. I think too often we don't want God to search us. We don't want God to dig into our lives. We don't want God to tell us where we need to fix something, right? We want God on our terms. We want God. Don't get me wrong. We want God. We want God because, and there's a sense in which we love God. We want God. We want eternal life. But, but it only goes so far. We still want to retain control over different things in our life. And I think David is saying, Lord, search me. Is there such a lever in my life that I'm not willing to, take, to let loose of? So he says, so, so we want God, but I think we want to retain control. He doesn't say this. I'm saying this. We want to control our money. We want to control our sex lives. I tell you what, in this modern world with our young brothers and sisters, I mean, the culture is telling us your sex life is yours. It's for your enjoyment. It's for you to, to, to indulge in whenever you want. God says, no, it's not. It's about your marriage. It's about your life together. That's what it's about. And, and we're, we're constantly in this generation as young people willing to step out, and old people too, and old people too. We're willing to step out of God's Directive and do what we, we want God, but we want to do what we want to do too. Or our time. I remember when a friend of mine began to follow Jesus. This was early on, back in the 1980s. And in this church, started coming here with uh, his wife and he made the statement to her, hey, I'll come to church with you, but it's not going to affect my time. It's not going to affect my fishing. It's not going to affect my my life, right? Well, it affected his life. I'm telling you, listen, when G- Jesus, when we follow Jesus, he, he doesn't want us to have a lever, a hand on any lever. 
Maybe it's your friends, the major influencers in your life. Who's going to be major influencers in your life? Maybe it's your hobbies that are out of balance. They rob you of time and money that God would want you using somewhere else. If we really are willing to ask God the question, search me, dig into my, tell me the truth, he is willing. The question is, am I willing to ask him and then am I willing to deal with what he puts his finger on? Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to pastorjimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.